Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of the Latin American Studies channel. I'm your host, Vinnie Soni, and I'm a professor of Hispanic Studies at the University of Delhi in India. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by Anjanette Delgado, who has compiled emblematic stories and essays by those who have been touched by the Florida and Miami experience of having been uprooted and displaced and who have consequently made Florida their home. Her anthology, titled Latinx Writers and the Literature of Uprootedness, published by the University of Florida Press Gainesville in 2021, has won the Silver Medal for the Independent Publishing Book Awards. Anjanette Delgado is a Puerto Rican writer and journalist based in Miami and is the author of The Heartbreak Pill, a novel, and The Clairvoyant of Calle Ocho. She has written for The New York Times, The Modern Love column there, Vogue, NPR, HBO, The Kenyan Review, and The Hong Kong Review. So, Anjanette, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Tell us about yourself and your choice of theme for this wonderful book, which is called Home in Florida, um, and has a trendy uh, woman on the cover, Latinx, I dare say. Yeah. Um, thank you for having uh, for having me, Minnie. I, um, I loved editing this book. I loved uh, working with the authors and um, choosing and reading their stories of uprootedness uh, throughout the time that we worked. We began working on this book during the pandemic. Um, I think we began sometime in um, May, maybe uh, of 2020 and worked you know, throughout the months, uh, just going over everything, over all the the stories, um, and I, I I really feel that it was it was very healing um, to to see that uprootedness is a different uh, experience for everybody. The, the way that we all encounter change, profound change, um, and also the way that we each as human beings. Um, come to terms with the new place where we, where we uh, sow roots. Um, for some people, it was very traumatic and they had ways of, of coming to terms with that that resulted in um, new understandings and more profound changes, not only for themselves, but for the place where they were, the place of Florida in this case, where they, um, ended up uh, landing, let's say. Um, and that was very healing to me to see that it's not always traumatic, though it, it can be, and that we kind of have a role, not just for us to get to a better place, but also to make better uh, the place in which we uh, land. In the introduction to your work, you've explained certain terms like uprootedness and displacement. You just talked a little bit about them. 
in the context of the Latinx experience in the United States. Give us an overview of this context and the various genres you have included, the poetry, love letters, prose songs, jokes, and how you've made it all hang together in this wonderful compilation. Yeah, so my, um, well, first of all, I have to say I had a magnificent uh, editor, uh, the editor of University of Florida Press, Stephanie Hunter. She, um, she agreed that a good way to uh, organize, let's say, all this content, all this experience um, was emotional an emotional context. So uh, in, the, in the introduction to the book, I talk about a constellation of stars to, to think of each uprooted person as a, as, as a star in a constellation. And a constellation, as we know, it's not a straight line. It's kind of a, you know, it can be kind of a jagged line. Uh, it can be a half acid, right? It doesn't go in a straight line to the end. And the further away you are to the starting line for a person, it, it seemed to me that that was a good way to explain or to see uprootedness. Not as, okay, so that person is uprooted and stays uprooted forever, right? Or that person is now um, part of this new place, right? So they're fine now. Um, that isn't the way, right? You could you could be in a new place 20, 30 years, and one day you might feel uprooted or the opposite. You might get to a new place and feel instantly at home, feel instantly embraced, instantly as if you had been born there. Um, and so rootedness is, is um, it's a process. It's more of a process. And it sort of goes back and forth in jagged ways like a constellation would. And so in arranging this work, I looked at the work, I looked at the author, and I tried to arrange it in an emotional way that we might see what an uprooted person goes through. So you go from the very beginning um, with authors whose stories of uprootedness, whether new or old, were still raw we're still kind of lost. Um, and then to the end where the author seems to think that they've, they have found their way, they have found something to hang on to, um, they have found home. And so um, it allows you to see things in terms of time in the new place or not, right? Um, but also to see the different backgrounds that the uprooted bring with them and how those backgrounds may or may not have contributed to how they saw their own process of uprootedness. So how we see our own change has a lot to do. You know, were you exiled on, you know, when you didn't want to go? The, your uprootedness will be that much longer. <laughs> Did you decide it? Were you looking forward to a new place? Were you ready? Uh, were you embraced? Were you seen as someone who could contribute to where you were going? Then your process was very different, right? You'll have an author wearing 
about the little things as opposed to the big things like survival um, and so on. So I, I really like that I was allowed to, to, to do it in this way um, because it makes for a different experience for the reader, but also because I'm hoping that uh, the book will, will foster a conversation beyond the stories in the book but that it will make people think about uprootedness and about you know foreign people or immigrants or the displaced in different ways um, than, than we have been doing so in, in the world up to now. It's such a timely book, even the ferment that we're living through all over the world and more so in the United States as well, where uh, immigration and all this is a hot topic. Now, in your anthology... Can I say, can yes? I say, that's what I thought when I began, that it was timely, that it was just then um, really time and book really coming together. But what I found out after, and it's funny because one of the first things that I quote in the book is Reinaldo Arenas, who who told somebody in the, in the 80s that he wanted to create a literature of uprootedness. This is where the title comes from. Um, he wanted to create a literature of uprootedness because he thought it was so timely. It was so timely almost 20, 30 years ago to him, right? He saw what the world was becoming. He saw uh, all, the, all the things that were happening politically um, in the world. And he thought, oh, we're going to need this. We're going to need this now. So I want to create that. Um, sadly, he, he didn't get to do that. But, but this is what, what uh, struck me is it was timely 30 years ago. And it's just as timely now. It was timely 100 years ago. And I'm hoping it won't be timely I'm hoping my book will go, it will go out of style. It won't be a thing, as, they, as the young people say here. Uh, this uh, this, this uh, thinking of the other in ways that don't serve any of us, right? Um, with fear, um, but it's a constant. This, this uprootedness is such because we continue to look at others in foreign quote unquote ways and ways that are alien. We, you know, we create these whole movements, political movements um, around that. And people who want power, political politicians of all sorts, use that against us, use our own fears against us for their own political gain. Um, and Florida is a great example of it to this day. Um, where it welcomes on one on the one end, and on the other end, um, turns around the everybody's fear to make that experience of uprootedness so uh, so dividing, so div divisive, right? Um, and and maybe that creates better art and more uh, incredible and emotional writing and painting and all that. But, but on the human level, it creates so many uh, incredibly negative things. But this is the way we handle uprootedness in the world today, still to this 
You know, it's incredible to me how we don't learn at all from history. And we continue to make to make this a thing, this otherness, this, oh, they're arriving, they're taking our jobs, they're taking um, something from me because they're here and they're different and I don't understand them. Therefore, I will fear them and I will try to drive them out. I will try to, quote unquote, take my country back, my neighborhood back, whatever it is, back from what, right? Um, and so it, it, it strikes me when you say, you know, it's so timely because I so wish it weren't, it weren't. I hope, let's hope. Uh, now, you've also included writers from many countries who congregate in the city of Miami and the state of Florida. And you probably believe what Barack Obama says in a quote in the story by Mia Leonin. He says, and I quote, Miami is a profoundly American city place that reminds us that ideas matter more than the color of our skin or the circumstances of our birth. And that's the end of the quote. Tell us about your personal conviction that these writings on Florida and the immigrant experience had to be collated and a corpus offered up to readers who would get the distillation of Florida's multiculturalism through the works of Patricia Enkel or Anna Menendez and Mia Leonin and many others. You've told us a little bit about that. But in particular, if you could focus on some of these writers and how you happen to choose them and about Florida as well. And there are also uh, lots of uh, evocative uh, vignettes in all these stories, which are sometimes quite positive as well for a multicultural reader. You know, the, the references to food, cafe cortado, all that. Wow, that's that's a that's a big morsel. So um, you you mentioned um, Barack Obama and what he said about Florida. So many things have been said about Florida, right? It feels like every day we we give people a reason to talk about us. Um, so for me, it was it was particularly interesting to talk about Florida, not because not just because I live here, but because the of the role that it plays to the rest of the United States, how the rest of the United States perceives us, right? This whole thing of, is it even part of the United States? Um, well, they speak Spanish down there. Well, they only speak a lot of Spanish really in South Florida and Florida is very big. Um, so, so that was interesting to me because it has um, so many differences within it, right? So you have Key West, which is you know, the West, the, the, the wild, wild West in some ways. And then you have, you know, all the way to Tallahassee, which is the capital and a lot more buttoned up, like with, let's say. And then you have Miami, where I live, which is really a very big mix of people from different kind, from all kinds of different countries and areas, but also from other parts of their life. Uh, Florida is known for retirees. So there are lots of people here who aren't from Florida. They're displaced from another area of the United States or they've been displaced by divorce or illness or sometimes opportunity, you know, after a job loss. And so it would seem to me that people here would understand what displacement is, but that's not always the case. And so it creates a tension And I talk about that tension in the book and it was sort of what I was looking for in the stories and what I strived to, to do. I didn't want to write a, 
travel brochure uh, about Florida. I didn't want to, uh, it wasn't an ode to Florida or a love letter to Florida, although some stories might seem that way. Um, but the, the book as a whole, I wanted to make sure to include um, everything, not just the positive or just uh, you know the gratitude that many of the writers feel to this place for uh, receiving them. And uh, the way that I chose them was very organic. I, I wish I could say that I just uh, you know had a very scientific method for creating the anthology. I thought of the writers that I love. The writers that I love, often I would say, oh, it's Latinx. This writer wouldn't wouldn't fit, but I wanted to put that writer in anyway because I was thinking more of, of I was thinking of displacement in a very broad way when I began. But there was a, an academic goal to do a, an anthology about Latinx voices because there isn't any. I, w- I hope there, there will now be others. But right now, there are no. This is the first book that compiles Latinx writings in Florida, but especially uh, from the standpoint of uprootedness. And so I felt that it was something that really united all these countries, as you say, more than just being Latinx. Um, it's, it's the experience of uprootedness and also of coming together and trying to come together in a place that is baffling, baffling, right? So you come to America, but did you come to America? You came to this very weird place that sometimes doesn't feel like America to other people. And so you've sort of, by virtue of coming here, you, you've prolonged your uprootedness because even when you've been in Florida for 30 years, guess what? you will not belong to the rest of the United States, not in the way that you might if you move to, I don't know, someplace where you were forced to integrate in a different way, where you might be forced to uh, put aside, hide, or um, explain constantly your otherness to the people among whom you've made your new home which is a completely different way of seeing uprootedness altogether, right? So yes, you've made home in Florida and you may have been able to adapt a little easier because other people are others as well. So there's that part of it. And that's why I think a lot of people continue to come here despite the political climate. But then, but then you're still not quite in the US just by virtue of saying you're from Florida, people go, Florida, oh my God, <laughs> and you and you feel a little bit out of place, even sometimes within Florida, from one area to the next, right? You're from down there, or you're from up there, or you're from central Florida, and the, the, the experience of living is different in each area as well. So, um, so for me, it was more about who do I love, who's writing, will serve the purpose of telling this story in a compelling, emotional way. And the thing is, with uprootedness, you kind of have to tell it in emotional ways because there's no way for you to understand my uprootedness unless you step into my, onto my shoes. You will think, 
all kinds of different things about my story unless you step in them. And um, you may or may not agree with my point of view. And this happens for everybody, right? We think a certain way about what what's happening in the world when it's not us, but especially when we think it couldn't be us. Our judgment is different. When you know, you're a Cuban person and you see an Ukrainian person being a refugee, you think about it in a different way because you've been there or you have family who's been there um, or family who might be there any day. And, and it's very present for you. So the way you see it is different. Whereas if you think you live in a stable, again, quote unquote, country, you think, well, you know, those people, <laughs> why are they doing this? Or why are they doing that? Or why don't they stay? Or why don't they leave? Or why didn't they leave when they could? Right? When, when you've been close to it, you know that it, those are very difficult decisions that no one uproots you know, for fun, <laughs> not one. uproots for fun, not really, not really. And these writers are the writers I love for their emotional mastery of, of words. Ana Menendez, um, whom you mentioned, is just amazing. I cannot hear her read without laughing or crying or feeling something. So it was, it was very important that people should feel something, even if it was anger. Even if it was, I so do not agree, that's fine. I prefer that than to read it calmly and placidly. It should be emotional. It should make you feel something. They are very heart-wrenching stories, each one of them. Even for people who are not uprooted, who are the majority community, each story tugs at the heart straight, you know, to use a cliche. So... I mean, it's, it's a wonderful compilation. Now, uh, let's focus now on the majority community of Miami reflected in essays, the Cuban migrants. Many of these stories seem to me to be taking off where Tomas Gutierrez Alea's film, Memorias de Sur Desarrollo, ended. Now, this was a film which is quite emblematic for lots of people in India and the third world, etc., because uh, this is a film that we study in our Hispanic uh, literature classes. You've also included Reynaldo Arenas, who embodies the Cuban exile experience in the contemporary Isbet Verde, who mentions Fidel Castro, and then the unforgettable Guillermo Rosales, who writes a work akin to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Tell us about this Cuban diaspora, for whom time seems to have stood still with the Cuban Revolution. Yeah. So being from Miami was really important for me that the Cuban diaspora in all its uh, complexity or as much complexity as I could um, gather were represented. Um, because in a way, um, you're right. You're absolutely right. Right. There's a there's a certain sense of deja vu, of standstill um, in terms of progress. Um but also, if you take the Cuban experience, if, if readers would look at these stories from Cuban writers, they would see 
that it's the island that has stood still, but that uh, Cubans continue to live the same thing over and over again, you know, even after the demise of the source of the troubles, whereas people 30 years ago might have thought, you know, well, we need to eliminate this person or this um, this uh, president or not president, but this dictator. Um, people now see, I mean, there's a certain uh, re- re- renewal of the hopelessness because by now, whatever was wrong, whatever drove them out, um, has renewed in the form of another person with like more life years to go, right? It has ingrained itself in the space. But really what's happened is um, people around the world, we have looked the other way on Cuba for too long, right? It hasn't been worth it for any government with the resources to fight to do something about it. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating uh, regime change in those ways, but what I am advocating is I see the pain of my my Cuban friends and family because the rest of the world doesn't seem to understand to this day because they see other people um, worshiping um, what's happening there or thinking that it's okay, that it's fine, there's nothing wrong with it because they haven't lived it. They haven't lived communism. And so they feel that way. Um, there's a lot of, of talent in uh, among the Cuban, and you mentioned Reynaldo Arenas, and it was so important. It was so hard to get the right to use the work. Um, but I kept trying. It took months, months to, to figure out and negotiate those rights. Um, but it was it was very important because Reynaldo could not could not uh, stay here. This place, as much as it wanted to embrace his talent, could not embrace him in any way that he felt as authentic. He felt that South Florida was the opposite, very inauthentic, very much a place where he felt stifled. Um, and you can see it in the story. The story is a delicious farce um, uh, where he doesn't speak out against it, but you can see that there's just something that doesn't work, right? The message is my characters can't, my characters could live here, but if they live here, then they kick me out. <laughs> I become uprooted from my characters because when they become South Florida, they become something alien to me. Um, and so it's a very special story. Uh, and I hope that that people will will enjoy it. There is a very, uh, very sad humor in it, right? There's this writer, just he's kind of a metaphor for the entire book because, you know, he's trying to fit in, right? He's trying to do what he does in the midst of these people who have all kinds of other angst, other fears, other ways in which they are trying to become rooted, you know, through art, through a community, through culture, through really uh, making people uh, appreciate them in other ways. And he's saying, no, 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 this is the opposite. We cannot be caring, right, what people think of us. But that was the tension, the, the, 
the main tension, that the thing that makes him leave and, and, you know, move to New York and make his living there. He was not about to be stifled again. He had just left that. Um, and so that piece is very special to me, not only, not only because of that, but because I owe him the title of the book. And then I'm so, I'm so excited that you mentioned uh, Guillermo Rosales and you say the unforgettable, because I feel he's been kind of forgotten here. Um, and it's part because he didn't leave a lot for us, right? He, he burned almost everything he ever wrote before uh, taking his life. Unfortunately, um, and thankfully, uh, everything he he did leave was uh, translated by the wonderful Anna Kushner, who, who was instrumental in, in 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 helping us get this even this portion of his wonderful uh, book that is, I think, one of the best books, if not the best, ever written about Miami of that time of the eighties. You know, really, really just encompassing. Uh, so much. And the title, I mean, The Halfway House. Uh, a halfway house is another fantastic metaphor for uprootedness. That's what you feel like. You're in a halfway house. You're there, but not there. You're on your way to something, but you don't know what that something is. And in the meantime, you're trying to hang on to what you left to survive. And a lot of the Cuban writers, um, and I, I submit all the uprooted writers, um, but it's most visible in, in the Cuban writers because they, they don't necessarily feel free to return. And even when they return, they can't return in the way that they might have envisioned when they left, especially for the older writers, right? Everybody else could make a choice to return, whatever the consequences, not so not so the Cuban writers who had left because leaving itself was a crime and therefore returning carried risks. Um, and so you have, you have uh, Rosales and, and Arenas, definitely, but also Richard Blanco, where you see uh, uprootedness, not as a choice, but as something to conquer and not just for yourself, but for an entire family. So that's a different experience when you, become uprooted with your family and you're all kind of changing and having to, to deal with that. And, and then you have other people who, who left for some other place. And this is supposedly, right. You have Raul Dopico who, who got here when you get here. Okay. This is the end of the line. I'm supposed to now stay here and like it here. And this is the promised land, as he says in his wonderful, Uh, story. But then I, I feel also that the Cuban writers in the book, Ana Menendez, Raul, Carlos Harrison, although Carlos is not Cuban, but Carlos talks in his piece about the Cuban community around him and being uprooted. His, him, him, he's American, right? But coming into a Cuban community and then feeling uprooted within it in his own country. Uh, Carlos Pintado, who, who writes a wonderful story of what happens in a place ravaged by COVID, Miami Beach, the loneliness of it, and, and likens it to the loneliness of, 
an uprooted person who is surrounded by people, but, but nevertheless alone for some time while they find their way. And I submit that the Puerto Rican people, I'm Puerto Rican, but um, the Puerto Rican writers also share something with the Cuban writers because Puerto Rico is still a colony of the United States. So while some people see the United States as the place of freedom to emigrate to, other people are coming to the to the mainland, the the country of the colonizer, the country uh, of whatever that that you know level of oppression might be, right? And so, and and again, it's also that déjà vu that that feeling of endlessness that Tomás Gutiérrez Alea so so fabulously portrays in a completely different political situation. Right, where where a hurricane might displace you, or a crime might dis- displace you, or gender violence, as in my case, gender violence displaces you. And it's incredible, meaning how all the stories kind of tie together. And I didn't mean for that to happen. I was just looking, like I said before, for that emotional uh, journey, tracing an emotional journey over time and over distance. And, and I submit that time is also distance because time creates a distance of, of experience. Um, and then how later when I read it through for editing and for copy editing, how they all seem to link it, this regardless of age, country, or what the experience might be. Thank you for those touching words. Next question uh, deals with something about racism. There are vignettes in these stories that make references to the casual racism amongst wasps who feel Miami is a city lost to the American heartland, and yet they all flock there regardless to enjoy the cafe Cortadito and the myriad joys of having the foreign in the midst of sameness. What do you make of this in betweenness of the minority and the majority in America? Um, so first I want to thank you for that question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. And I found it so very intriguing and interesting and so right, so insightful, so precise, right, in its vision. Um, and I do think that it goes beyond Florida, but in speaking about, about Florida... I do think that one of the reasons that uprootedness thrives in Florida, but also home, the other word in the title, um, also thrives in Florida, is precisely that tension that you mentioned between uh, the awareness of the other, the separateness that some, some natives might create, and I say natives, and quite frankly, I shouldn't even use the word to refer to anybody, anyone other than Native Americans, because the reality is that I know precious few people who are born and raised in Florida. It is truly a state of, of, of uprootedness. Um, universities, you know, we have so many universities and they are a, a major source. People come here to study or to teach of, of all that. Um, but it's always struck me 
that people like certain things, but will reject the same things that they love in another context. It has always struck me how people love Cuban coffee and love, you know, the dancing and the um, quote unquote exotic nature of the quote unquote foreign um, people who aren't always so, right? Many of the writers in the book were born in the United States. Their roots are elsewhere. And so for me, what that means is any uprooted person carries a duality, um, what you left and where you are now, the now and the before. And the people around us, the people who were here also carry a duality. Um, and, and, and that's just part of being a human being, right? So a part of me embraces all of it, but a part of me says, well, what about whatever it might be that I feel threatens me? Um, and it used to strike me as very strange until I tried, even for writing the intro to the book, to put myself in the shoes of the people already here. And it, it allowed me to see what kind of person throve among people who were just arriving constantly. And it's the kind of person who doesn't want everything the same, who th sees change as a necessary evolution, who sees change as growth, as vibrancy, as learning. People who associate change with that will do well in a place with a lot of people who are not native from the place, right? Um, people who had experiences, political, economic, of displacement themselves, um, of change that was not a good change, that was too sudden or too drastic um, or not managed in any way, um, will have the, uh, the opposite because their fear will not let them enjoy the Cuban coffee and the delicious food and the new influences, right? So you can also see how displacement creates more displacement. You can see it now with what's happening with Ukraine, you know, and Poland has embraced their brothers and sisters across the border. But also you will see as time goes by the tension and the otherness because not all sectors will be okay with it. There will be change and the change created by the displacement of violence, which cannot be managed efficiently any more than it has been, right? It is a trauma. It isn't, you know, lawful as some people here say, well, you know, they do it lawful where lawful takes 30 years and it takes 30 years because there will be politicians who will try to make it harder than it needs to be for their own gain. So there's there are all these laws around displacement that are artificial, that are not made for anything that makes sense. It's not, well, this is how much people we can, we can um, peacefully integrate into our society and be helpful. Nothing to do with that. It has more to do with what can be compromised among whatever political factions a country has, 
right, between hard line and easier. And that tension also, and then it creates all kinds of turmoil for lives, right? So Poland right now said, okay, open arms, and they are doing a magnificent job. And they're, you know, they're remembering their history as well in, in what they're doing. And I applaud them every day. But we need to know that eventually with time, that displacement so sudden, so violent, so chaotic will create tension of its own. And that's just the way it is. You cannot foresee and you cannot control something bad. And displacement often, not always, but often happens as part of you know, that turmoil that you can't really plan for. And so, you know, the displaced are in a way condemned to, to deal with the, that tension, that, that otherness, that um, racism um, forever sometimes. Because then even after you've gone through it and survived it and you have a home and you have a job, and you have found some friends and you have uh, worked out, maybe in your writing, your feelings about that displacement. Something can happen tomorrow and guess what? You're still an other. I see it here every day. Something happens with Cuba or with Venezuela or in Ukraine and instantly communities take sides based on what they think keeps them safe or what their experience was before, you know, with their displacement or lack thereof. And that continues to inform the way that they vote and the way that they express themselves as a community. And that continues to affect the leaders we get. And those leaders in turn will use or not those things to create the next future, right? The next outline. It's incredible to me. And this is why we keep repeating history. This is why there will always be another. This is why there will always be displacement and uprootedness will always be timely because displacement creates displacement of the mind, creates racism, And so we're doomed to repeat it. It's, it's incredible to me. I still, I'm talking to you about it. And I'm also sort of explaining it to myself, if that makes any sense, right? So what you see in your question, that tension between the good stuff and the things that we'll reject is because we're human. And so we like new things and we like interesting, different things, but we fear what comes with it. And, and the, the, in the way we measure fear, that will tell you how much we're, we allow ourselves to like the good stuff, if that makes any sense. Yes, uh, your answer throws into relief a lot of facts that, you know, cosmopolitans need not necessarily be, I mean, uh, the image we have of a cosmopolitan, the definition is one who accepts others, who welcomes the foreign, But it's one thing to like the snob value of having a cafe cortadito or enjoying Cuban food 
and it's another thing also to accept the politics that go with it. So exactly, exactly. Well, and not just to accept necessarily, but to understand, right? To understand where that where it might come from. Um, and look, human humanity, right? If I get new neighbors and the new neighbors, um, I don't know. Let's see, one that everybody has gone through. You know, they play their music loud. Well, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't understand why they don't wear headsets. I don't understand. And I also feel, well, they should know, right? In my head, they should know that their rights end where mine begins. And I don't want to hear their music at whatever time they decide while I'm in my house, right? And those are things that are very basic to me after having lived in the mainland for 30 years. But in Puerto Rico, many communities pride themselves on loud music. The loud music is a signal of happiness. It's almost superstitious, right? My mother would clean the house with loud music because the music helped clean the space, the spirit of the space. And it just meant she was happy. She was happy. She was celebrating the everyday, her everyday life by cleaning her house. She would throw buckets of water, uh, clean. That was what she called a deep cleanse. Be throwing buckets of water, picking everything up from the floor. And she felt that that was a really good clean because the water ran until it ran clean through all the floors of the house, doors open, and the music was like detergent, just another detergent there to cleanse everything, to renew everything. And I get that, but I get that because I'm Puerto Rican. And still, when my neighbors here try to play music, I will knock on their doors, say, you know, you need to bring it down. You, you really do. So I'm trying to read, I'm trying to write, I'm trying to sleep. Um, so there's, you know, but I would do it maybe differently than somebody who might call the police because somebody who might call the police might just feel it like just an incredible lack of respect, right? A violation of auditory space, which it is. So I think it takes a while for that, right? Um, to understand, okay, this person doesn't understand the context, that we don't bring our context with us. We do inside us, but we still have to adjust outside to, to the world. So that those days or years or however long it takes someone to understand you're not where you were is also something feeding the tension, right? Um, So sometimes it's racism, but sometimes I think it's just humanity, just normal being human beings and not liking intrusion what we, or what we might, you know, construe as intrusion into the way things are or the way we built them. I want to thank you so much for this very engaging conversation that we've had. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope this book is read by millions of people 
all over the world so that we weather better the storms that have suddenly accosted us in the past few years. You mentioned in our conversation the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and also the Cuban revolution, and how all these displacements and uprootedness create, create a philosophy of displacement and uprootedness. And we would do well to be aware of this philosophy in order to get through life. Thank you so much. Thank you.